Welcome to episode number two of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the second episode of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, where I interview pioneers from across the aerospace industry to discuss cutting-edge research, promising new technologies, or engineering success stories from the past. Today I'm talking to Professor Paul Weaver, who holds a Bernal Chair in Composite Structures at the University of Limerick in Ireland, and is simultaneously a Professor in Lightweight Structures at the University of Bristol in the United Kingdom. As many of you will know, lightweighting plays a crucial role in the aerospace industry, and this makes Paul the perfect person to interview regarding the design of efficient aircraft structures. Throughout his research career, Paul has collaborated with industrial partners such as NASA, Airbus, GKN Airspace, and Augusta Westland Helicopters, and so I was particularly delighted when Paul made some room in his busy schedule to sit down with me and Limerick to talk about his past accomplishments, present work, and his future vision for the industry. Paul is especially known for his work on morphing structures, which are compliant yet load-bearing structures that can change their shape to more optimally perform under different loading conditions. The simplest example of a morphing structure is a leading-edge slat, which is used on all commercial aircraft today to prevent stall at takeoff and landing. Paul, on the other hand, envisions morphing structures that are more integral, like the wings of a bird, and that therefore do not rely on heavy actuators to function. Apart from morphing structures, Paul and I discuss his teenage dreams of becoming a material scientist, his work with Mike Ashby at Cambridge University on material and shape parameters, which are now being used the world over to design efficient structures, his industrial work with Augusta Westland and NASA, and much, much more. I really had a blast with this interview, and so I hope you enjoy the conversation and find some food for thought. As always, show notes are available at airspaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast. And now, please enjoy my conversation with Professor Paul Weaver. Paul, welcome to the Airspace Engineering Podcast, and thank you very much for inviting me to, to Limerick. We're here at the University of Limerick in Ireland, uh, and I'm really excited uh, to be talking to you today. Well, that's great, Ryan. It's, it's a pleasure to speak to you today. So I want to kick things off with uh, your background. Um, about We had the, you know, at a pre-conversation about your dreams of becoming yeah. an aerospace engineer. So how did you actually come to be an aerospace engineer and what were your okay. dreams growing up? Oh, okay, well I was good at school and I was good at maths and sciences and I couldn't choose what I wanted to do and you got very, you didn't get great career guidance in the early 80s and I had to make decisions. So at 16 I had to choose between maths and arts and I, uh, maths, science and arts and I chose maths, physics and chemistry. Probably too young to specialise. I had a passion for it and it was a great decision. And after one year of that, I decided what I wanted to study at university. And um, I was told you should do, the shorter the name of the degree, the better the degree. I didn't want to do maths because I wanted to apply it. Uh, but I loved physics, although I found it hard. In fact, mechanics I found really hard. Um, guess what I do now? Yeah, I do. An expert. And mechanics, yeah, it says something, doesn't it? I had to work really hard at it, and that probably meant I had to, I got a, a deep understanding eventually, but it took a long time. Sucker for punishment, you could say. Anyway, that's what I do now. And I love chemistry. So the degree that best fitted that was materials engineering. At the same time, as a 17-year-old, I read two Penguin Classic 
textbooks from our sixth form library. Uh, one was called, both by the author Gordon, one was called Why Don't You Fall Through the Floor, which has captured my imagination. What stops us? <laughs> How do you get reactions for loads and things like this? And another was on structures, why you, structures have the shapes they do, and I, this fascinated me. And there was no degree course that fitted that, but I did materials engineering, and I was, it was great. I got a nice degree, did very well with it, but there wasn't enough structures in it, and so I did a PhD in composite materials, which combined structural elements with materials elements. I, there was no path to follow, no guidance, but it just felt right, and so I did that, and I managed to get sponsorship from a, an aerospace company. So I didn't want to be an aerospace engineer. I just love materials and structures. Mm -hmm. But space fascinated me, but I, well, I didn't particularly want to be an aeronautical engineer, but I like to model, mathematically model and build things. So I did a PhD with a company called Coltolds Aerospace. They no longer exist. I hope it wasn't down to the endeavors of my PhD. Um, no, it wasn't, of course. But, uh, this was now the early 90s and there was a recession and they overstretched themselves financially, so they went bankrupt. But I had a great training experience playing around with composite materials in state-of-the-art labs and state-of-the-art computing equipment beyond anything in university labs. So that was brilliant. Um, great training. Um, End of the PhD, biggest opportunity. I did my PhD at Newcastle. Sorry, I should say. did my first degree at Newcastle. Neither had great reputations of composites, but... I had five, when I was a sixth form, I applied to five universities, got five offers. I went to Newcastle because I felt like they treated me more like a human being than anywhere else. Probably naively chose them, but it was, things turned out all right in the end. Yeah, absolutely. They did. So, <laughs> so I guess, so, I mean, as you, as you pointed out, so you didn't want to become really an aerospace engineer, and your route into aerospace was through um, materials. Yeah. Um, and. So was it always going to be composites, or were you just thinking interested in materials in general? Did yeah. something catch your Great question. when um, you saw composites? Yeah, well, there was two things. We did, in my materials entry, there was very little on composites in the course, and there was more on ceramic. But these new materials with new properties enabled new things to happen, and that new stru uh, engineering structures, bigger new types of spacecraft, new types of transport, and that just excited me. It was probably more on the science fiction and fat things, but it inspired me. And I just felt, I didn't want to work with metals because it's all been done and it seemed dull. Uh, I didn't like concrete, it seemed really dull. I like structures which move, move around, and, and actually I'm making a big research career out of structures that change their shape now, which is linked to movement. And so uh, things that flew, moved, space, and, and space had ex attracted the most expensive material development because it costs more material, costs so much money to get something into space, that there's a huge um, uh, emphasis on light weighting. Yeah. And that means carbon fiber composites, reinforcements and things like that, because these have the, the best combination, stiffness, strength and density of any engineering materials. So when I started looking at them, I thought, oh, these are fascinating. You can not only design a structure there, these unique properties, but you design the material. And the distinction between a material and structure becomes blurred. And I love that. And, that. and that's basically where my career was focused on, right from a PhD student. This interaction between material properties, exploiting them in a nice way. Exploit is often negative, but it's actually, you know, you're trying to make best use of them, particularly with the geometric shape, which is where the structure is. And I still feel today there's few people with these skills which rather surprising considering this could be civil engineers, mechanical or aeronautical engineers, 
but this is where my career has um, focused on and it seems to have served me well. Right, so you, you just mentioned that uh, the kind of blurring distinction between the material and the structure. Mm. And so when you finished your PhD, you were a postdoc at Cambridge University. Yeah. So one of kind of the great material scientists, yeah. perhaps of the, of the 21st century, Mike Ashby. And you worked with him on material selection and, and, and mm. shape factors. So I guess there, this, did that distinction between material and shape already arise? Could you maybe talk a bit more about yeah. what material factors are and what shape factors are and why they're important? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, perhaps it's of interest to say a little bit why I went there. Uh, yeah, Professor Mike Ashby is a guru in materials, material science world. He's one of the most highly influential people of the, of the whole of the 20th century. He's still alive and still semi-active now, which is great. But he was my examiner for my PhD and I... Uh, uh, in Newcastle, it was a big thing, uh, him coming to Newcastle to examine me and then in my viver he, he offered me a post-top position and so uh, after I went backpacking for a couple of years I, I asked him if it was still available, he was a bit shocked to hear from me but long story short, I, six months ago for application interview process I was successful and worked for him for four years and it was brilliant and he, what he had come up with was material performance indices to show which materials are best for certain applications. And I love this, and it reflected a parallel of my own thinking. What I've been doing, I'm not saying, but he'd done it so elegantly, eloquently, and I learned a lot from him. But I knew that what you can do with the material, you could do with a structure. And he'd already gone along these lines and developed something called, like any structure, wouldn't look like a, let's just talk about a, well, what should we say, a, a suspension system in a car, a leaf spring. It, it, that's what it is, it's a leaf spring. It, they can be made, now they tend to be made from laminated glass fiber composites in many cars. They have some very good structural properties. But you can model it as a, as a beam. We abstract it as a beam. And then you look at what you're trying to get. And you're trying to absorb a lot of energy in this structure. And it basically means you need a right combination of a strength and a Young's modulus, and glass fiber comes out really well. And Ashby identified the combination of the material properties which maximizes performance. But then he realized that the shape makes a difference. It's not just a lump of material. So in bending something, and you can look around everyday buildings and you'll see these steel girders which are shaped like an I, capital I in cross-section. And not surprisingly, they're called I-sections. These things um, maximize um, a geometric property called the second moment of area, uh, which basically the further the material is away from the axis of bending, the more efficient it is. It's analogous to the moment of inertia, which many high school students will be aware, with, aware of. When you rotate a bottle, just rotate a bottle of water with them, um, uh, and you'll, you'll note that it, it, it's got inertia, it slows down, it doesn't rotate very far. And this is down to the the average position of a water particle from the axis of rotation, not just the distance, it's the distance squared that matters. So the further you are away, the, the more inertia there is in a structure in terms of its stiffness in bending, the further a material particle is away from the axis of bending, the stiffer it's going to be. And I realized that second moment of area is a complete analogous to Young's modulus. Young's modulus characterizes material stiffness, second moment of area characterizes section stiffness. And together, they always appear in structural land, and they give, they, they give a structural stiffness. So in bending, this leaf spring we're talking about is dominated by something called EI, 
is called a flexural stiffness or bending stiffness. It's a structural property, and you always have this interrelationship marriage between a young a material property, in this case Young's modulus, and a section property, in this case second moment of area. They combine to get a structural property. So I know you could have performance indices. If you could have performance indices for materials, there must be something for structures, shapes. And Ashby had identified these things. So for essentially he I'll draw the analogy one step further. He basically said the lightest beam of a given stiffness, so this could be this leaf spring again, is given by the material with the largest Young's modulus to the power of a half divided by density. Now, if I drew, draw an analogy with geometric properties, the geometric equivalent of Young's modulus is the second moment of area, right? and the geometric equivalent of density of a sec it's just a cross-sectional area. So we could hypothesize that the, the, the property that characterizes the, um, the geometric stiffness is i to the half of an a. And that's exactly what it turns out to be if you go through the analysis. So uh, Ashby hypothesized that, and then I made sense of it, further sense in linking it to the material properties and came out with these uh, analogous quantities. So there is now commercial software from Ashby called the Cambridge Engineering Selector. And not only does it have material property database in there for selection of best materials, it also has structural shapes, uh, characteristics, which have their second moment of areas, cross-sectional areas, and other properties which you can combine. So it's together, they're the ones that are important. So I was working on this and developing the methods for selection tools for this for about three years. In the final year, I went back to my roots in composites and wondering, could we do something with composite materials? Because they tend to be thin layers and you can laminate them in which the properties are different layer by layer. And so then I was thinking, can we bring those same principles in? And it turns out you can. So I started to develop performance metrics for a composite material. And then you've got a composite material, and you've got its geometric shape, and then you've got the base material from what it's made, and they all combine in a hierarchical way to give structural performance. That's a lengthy answer. I hope there's some sense oh, in that. That's absolutely about. great. I was just wondering that for certain applications, um, say if you have buckling or you have bending, yeah. do those shape factors change? Are they, are they different depending on what scenario you're looking at? Well, yeah, it's a great question, right? So actually for bending, you know the axis of bending, so you take the second moment of area about that axis. For buckling, it will buckle in the weakest direction, so you take the second moment of area about its weakest axis. Mm -hmm. So let's move on to helicopter blades okay. and the work that you did for Augusta Westland yeah. on one of their helicopter blades. And this topic is very intertwined with some of the capabilities that composites um, allow or give engineers. So what is one? What is an isotropy? Maybe okay. when we start off there, what's yeah. bent twist coupling? Okay. And how does this arise in composite? Yeah. So you couldn't really have something like that. Yeah. That design that you created for Augusta yeah. Westland is not possible with a metallic structure. Yeah. So what is it in the composite that allowed you okay. to create that design? Well, composites would have, have, have I that simply put, have preferred uh, the directions for their material properties. That means they're different in different directions. And the great that gives great scope for designers and engineers to be able to tailor the structural performance by laminating in different directions. So simply put, let's look at the simplest type of composite material where you have a stiff, brittle fibre, stiff, brittle and strong fibre. That's why we make composites out of them because they're brittle. 
So something like carbon fiber, which is technically ceramic and it's very brittle, it breaks easily. But you embed it in something more compliant, like a, a matrix and let's just say epoxy resin, aerodite if you will, which you can buy from the high street. And there's a synergy between the two, there's a nice marriage between they work together. So the, uh, you, you actually eliminate a lot of the brittleness of the carbon fiber by having the matrix there. And it's stiff in the fiber direction, these long fibers, but perpendicular to it, which we might call the matrix direction, it's not stiff and it's not strong. It had to pop. So it's highly anisotropic. The anito means it's, the properties vary in different directions, essentially. So by laminating, you can get some really interesting behavior. Now, I'll give you an example. You can, you, there's often simple mechanical analogs using everyday items to mimic composite behavior. So, um, let's take a um, just an elastic band, just a simple elastic band which holds a piece of paper. Now take it across your fingers. So now I'm opening my thing. I've got my forefinger and thumb, and forefinger from both hands in the vertical plane. And the the, it's, uh, the elastic band is wrapped around in like an ellipse shape. Then you invert one of your fingers and thumbs. Doesn't matter which hand. So there's the, a twist in the middle. Now. There's a twist. It's like a figure of eight. Mm -hmm. Now, pull. What do you feel on your fingers? Well, you feel your reaction to that pull, which is an extension, which is normal, you expect, but you're actually feeling a twist on it, a twist moment. That is anisotropic behavior. You don't get that if you did it with a, sorry, if you just pulled a sheet of metal. Mm -hmm. And, the, and the, re the reason for this is that it, you've got not the, the, the figure of eight, the intersection are not coplanar, they're out of plane. And because of that, the reactions at that point are out of plane and it develops a couple, a twist moment, which you feel on your fingers. And now in composites parlance, that's called extension twist coupling. So if we could do that in a helicopter rotor blade, as it's spinning around, it's centrifugally loaded and that extends it. But if we had the same thing, this, this analogy with the elastic band, if we could build in this extension twist coupling, you could get it to twist, which you couldn't do with a metal thing, which will change the, the, the lift characteristics drag, and you can start to tailor the landscape. So that's one type of anisotropy. Another one is if you take um, um, a, uh, a piece of material, just imagine you take a piece of, uh, you put a piece, uh, some steel wire <laughs> in a piece of rubber, latex, and you make a, a, a square out of it. And so the fibers are parallel to one of the edges. But then at 45 degrees, you cut out another square, inner square from it. So now the fibers are at 45 degrees to the edges. Now you pull parallel to the edges. And what you find is that the fibers want to realign with the directional line. So what, the, the, what you find is a stretch, but when they realign and rotate, it manifests itself as a, a type of shear. Wow, man, we call that extension shear coupling. Now, in a helicopter rotor blade, we want to make use of bend twist coupling. And I will revert the audience back to the box that we mentioned earlier, thin wool box, which is great in bending. So the top of the aerofoil is a laminate, top of the box, bottom of the aerofoil is another part of the box. These are called the flanges, and then there's vertical walls called webs connector. Now imagine we put some a material with extension shear coupling 
from the top flange and the bottom flange. Now, when it's been, uh, when these things are bending and they fly and they will bend due to the lift load. So the whole rotor blade basically bends up. Yeah, 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 the blade bends up, great. That basically puts the top flange into, uh, gotta get this right, compression, and the bottom one into tension. Because there's extension shear coupling, they want to shear in opposite directions, but they cannot because of the vertical walls that constrain them, and you get a rotation. So as the whole rotor blade bends up, yeah. it also twists. twists. Yes. So it's kind of like if I stick my arm out the window while I'm driving the car, yeah. and I can feel kind of like a bit of a lift yeah. force yes. in my arm, yeah. that helicopter blade that's being bent up, it also starts to basically twist. Yes, absolutely. All right. Now, there's many ways you, you, you might want to do that for, uh, for feathering aerodynamic loads and things, but Augusta Westland at the time weren't so worried about that. Helicopters don't have some sort of many biomimetic equivalents in nature. Maybe sycamore seeds or something like that, but very rare. You don't see many, you don't see rotating things very often. It's all sorts of reasons why about bearings and uh, things like this, which are difficult to occur in nature for evolve, because evolution has every intermediate step has to work. But the engineers, we're not constrained by evolutionary processes. I actually think technologically we can be inspired by nature, but we can do so much better. Skip steps. Skip steps. Yeah, absolutely. We can go into the great unknown. So helicopters are a bit like that in terms of technology development. Um, but they, they are huge vibrators, they can shake apart. So helicopter blades are highly tuned, their mass and stiffness distributions, those things that affect vibrations uh, are highly tuned to bounce. It's a bit like a car wheel when you go down to quick fit or the garage, they put lead weights around the rim to keep it. That's what they do with helicopter rotor blades. They make it, but because there's always some manufacturing imperfection, They'll go around and, and balance a blade by putting weights around. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now you know that they're vibrators. So what that means is when you speed up a helicopter, you go through natural frequencies, the various blade modes. And what this happens is it will vibrate. You get a first bend mode, which is just a flap up and down. It's like fluttering up and down. Yes, it happens over a very narrow speed, whereas you're one or two miles an hour as you speed through. So you just experience a little shudder as you go through. The next one is a torsion mode, and you get a little shudder in, in a roll, twist. And then the next one is a higher order bend mode. It's a higher frequency one, but it would be again. The problem was with the standard design is that the bend and twist, the, the, the second bend mode and the first twist mode almost occurred at the same speed, and there was a nonlinear interaction which gave a, a roll to the aircraft, made it more difficult to control and fly. So by putting this bend-twist coupling at the blade level, we could separate them out. You go to much cleaner flight, and these have been built into 100 blades, um, which have seen um, a service with the UK military, um, and they're in something called the Merlin helicopter. And okay, and this is the Merlin helicopter. Yeah. I will put a link up to that helicopter. Yeah, or EH-101, as it's also okay. known. And it has a very, also involved, so I mean, say my involvement was this, the Air Augusta Westland engineers already knew what they wanted to do. I just came up with the material selection choices and what and what orientations of carbon fibre to use and other materials to get what they want. And uh, so that was with a PhD student as well, mine, Stuart Lemansky. So that was a nice successful project. Nice. And, and I mean, so a similar structure is, is a, for example, a wind turbine. Yeah. Head. And I think in, in that case, you can do some tailoring as well. Absolutely. 
um, which is, I think, a sli slightly different. In that case, yes, it is, the, yes. the driver is, is, is something else. So what yes. is driving the kind of elastic okay. tailoring for a wind turbine blade? Yep. Great question, Rainer. So let's just say what the difference between a wind turbine blade and a helicopter is. Well, one is in the vertical plane, so a helicopter rotor blade, and one's in a horizontal plane. But more than that, helicopters know what airspeed they're having because we control the speed of the flow because you're floating. But with a wind turbine, it's sitting there and the wind is changing all the time. Mm -hmm. So um, the big thing driving um, uh, uh, wind turbine blades, and they're getting longer and longer because they're much more efficient at capturing energy. The energy you reap from, from a wind turbine blade goes into the, um, the square of the, of the diameter. Right, okay. So you can see bigger and bigger wind turbine blades. But the problem with the variable wind speed is you put fatigue loads into it, and this can cause damage, premature failure of the blades. So what you're trying to do with the bend twist coupling is alleviate the loads particularly at the root, this is the point where the blade joins the hub, mm -hmm. where the load, where the stresses are highest. So what you're trying to do is when you get an overloading, like a gust, you'd really want the blade to, what's called, um, feather, so you, you bend, it twists to reduce the angle of incidence and therefore reduces the lift force on the blade, and that corresponds to less stress at the root, so to improve, to improve the fatigue life. All right. So it's basically, if I'm trying to imagine what would happen in, in the real world scenario, as a gust hits the wind turbine blade, you could basically imagine that the turbine blade just starts to twist out of the wind, yeah. out of the wind, yeah. maybe? Is, is that basically yeah, yeah, yeah. What's going that's on? exactly right. Okay. Uh, so, and that was done. We didn't, I mean, that's not our concept. I mean, that was known for since the 90s, but the problem with that is it also happened at all wind speeds. Um, you were losing energy, obviously, and the companies didn't like that. So uh, an innovation uh, that uh, has been developed at the University of Bristol is we use variable bend twists along the length of the blade. We change the characteristics. So what we do is we, and we combine it with a geometric sweep. Because remember what I said, what you can do with material properties, you can do with geometry and vice versa. So we combine a swept blade but that basically means it's like an angle or an S-shape, shall we say, towards the tip of the blade. It's bent back away from the wind, and that naturally relieves loads. But then we bring material uh, fiber characteristics to bend it back. So here I'm just putting my arm out to show Rhino what I mean, is that the geometric sweep takes it back towards the tip, which just like to get the energy back, you just bring it back with the material properties. All right, so then now there is this, I guess, an interaction yeah. between geometry and the anisotropy yes. that you described before, that the geometry causes it to twist in one way, yeah. and then the material properties are counterbalancing it. Yeah. The Only at the tip. In a board, you want it all to go the same way. Right. So you're getting a, a synergistic combination of geometric uh, coupling and anisotropic material coupling right. to best match optimal performance characteristic. Right. And then um, there's another form of elastic tailoring that you've uh, worked on a lot, which is uh, with NASA. Yeah. Um, what was that work all about? What was, what, why was NASA so interested in, in, in your book? Oh, right, this is a, this is a, 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 thanks for the question. This was the day NASA, I got a letter from NASA inviting me to go over it for 10 weeks uh, at their expense. and. Um, I wrote a paper, but I, I, in fact, the major aerospace conference is called SciTech. Back in the day, 
20 years ago when this was, well, 18 years ago when this happening, it was called the Structured Dynamic Materials Conference. And I knew NASA were going to be there. And I knew some authors and I really wanted to impress them. So I waited a few years to get the best piece of work together on buckling. And yeah, I did something called buckling of anisotropic cylindrical shells and the compression. Now, what does that mean? Well, rocket structures are cylindrical shells and they're prone to collapse on launch. Well, they were in the 1960s and now it's been mitigated to a certain extent. And a lot of the reason for it is thought to be a geometric imperfection which collapses it. Uh, you can play around with this at home. If you just take a, a, a Coke can, a soda can, um, and you drink it and then um, you stand on it and you get someone to flick the edge of it and you'll see how quickly it will collapse. Basically, a big rocket structure is nothing more than a glorified Coke can uh, in that regard. Um, but I thought it wasn't just geometry. I thought it could be un material anisotropies could be a part of course. So I showed the theoretical analysis, some mathematical analysis that you could um, get a, uh, if you've got your wrong type of anisotropy and maximize the wrong type, yet ignored it in your analysis, which is what all the NASA people were doing and designing, like, ignored anisotropy, you could re reduce the buckling load by 35%. So that caught their ears, and for some reason they liked what I said, but more importantly, like anything, they thought they could work with me as a person, they haven't seen me and spoken to me. So about three months after the conference, I got this invitation and I was made up. I said, yes! It was like passing my driving test or getting my A-level results. It was like personal highs of my life. And then basically I made my career after that. And so I guess that collaboration has been ongoing for the last 20 years? Yeah, I mean, I was an annual visitor and I would spend two, between one three months at NASA coming up with new, new design formula for buckling of plates and shells, taking account of anisotropies. Um, worked with a guy called Mike Nemeth, who was the guru in structures across all NASA agencies, all branches. And um, yeah, so from 2001 until uh, 2011, I was a regular consultant visit there and did something. And I, you know, it, uh, it's great, it, it ran its course, but I still go back occasionally and I've got great friendships there. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, it was, yeah. But as a foreign national, you, you never get to know what hardware you contribute to, but you, but the, your, your mathematical formula you develop or the, or the or physical insight uh, applies to many types of structures. So, yeah, that's what you're there basically to, to be guided on what to work on and then, then educate and inform the NASA scientists. Yeah, so now I basically want to <laughs> s s swap, swap the topic from where we've been talking about buckling cylinder buckling, where buckling is a form of, it's a catastrophe. Yeah. You don't want it to happen. In a cylindrical shell it is, in a in plate a it's not. Shell. Now, so you, yeah, so you, you, you raised the point of a, of a plate where this mm. is not the case. So the other research that you're, mm. you're famous for is morphing. Yeah. And this basically uses what I just alluded to, that buckling is not a catastrophe, yeah. it is a, a technique or adding additional functionality mm. to the structure. So what is morphing? What is the essential idea of morphing? How does composites play into it? And then basically, mm. how, do you, how do you see the future of aerospace developing with these technologies? Wow, you don't, you're not asking for it's, much there, Reiner. That's a big question. <laughs> but you are the, uh, the person to ask. Uh, I keep massage on my ego. Well, so, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Um, so morphing is, um, is a relatively new term, but for an old phenomenon. So it's it's structures that change their shape. Why do they change their shape? Because some shapes are 
uh, are optimal for different conditions. Now, for aircraft, that means there's different flight conditions. You possibly want a different aerofoil shape for takeoff and landing you do for cruise. In fact, that happens already. We use flaps and slaps to change the aerodynamic profile of. But these are discontinuous heavy, uh, work very well, mind you, heavy high um, hydroelectric actuation or hydromechanical actuation. Um, so we just think, could we integrate everything into a material, make it multifunctional? Material structure, blur the differences. And uh, so I had the idea back in 2001 of, of using buckling for expediting shape change. And you can easily show buckling for shape change very easily. You could show it with a, a carpenter's metal measuring tape, which is a cylindrical shell structure using structural mechanics parlance, uh, and it will snap. And it will snap back, and there's no failure. Snap, 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 snap. And that's essentially elastic buckling phenomenon, and it's reversible because it's elastic, no plastic deformation. So I thought, well, this is interesting, and there are some composites which do the same. You can get flat plates if they're non-symmetrically laminated. Um, basically, what happens with a non-symmetrically laminated composite is that um, uh, the neutral axis, meaning that it's not stressed, it doesn't lie in the mid-plane, and uh, you can develop uh, thermal stresses from when it's cooked uh, or cured, which is an elevated temperature, perhaps 103 degrees Celsius, and it cools down, you develop these moments and, and in plane And what it does is it wants to form a, uh, a sort of, uh, uh, let's get this right, some sort of... Uh, I guess it starts off as a saddle, I think, and then mm -hmm. it transitions into one of two... Yeah, it wants to become a saddle shape. Yeah. But the thing with a saddle shape, if you, you, can't, you can't form a saddle out of a piece of paper without stretching mm -hmm. or compression. That is energetically expensive. That creates compressive stresses in the middle, and basically a buckle mm -hmm. to what we call a developable surface, which is in this case a cylindrical surface. And it goes into a cylinder, but it could go into a cylinder of one or two orientations. Mm -hmm. So either, I guess the cylinder is either facing up, if you put it yeah. on, on, a, on a table, or it's basically... Facing, facing down, down and rotated through 90 degrees. Yeah. And if you just turn it around in space, there's no difference between two. It has one or two preferred structures. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, you could snap from one to the other after that. It's no preferred end. Um, and that is by stability. And I thought, that's a great way of affecting shape change. So try to get research programs looking at this for using this for morphing wings and getting flapping wings, uh, maybe wings that, um, like birds, being inspired by birds. Maybe you could fold them in and then they could extend using these things. So the last 16 years, I've been looking at various ways of doing this. And the anisotropy of that lamp I mentioned is not necessarily the best way of doing it. It's not very good at resisting loads which could carry people. Maybe it's good for small vehicles like drones. And that is something still a research topic that can be exploited. But we looked at other ways of doing it. You can also see bi-stability in little um, uh, child's, mostly girls, hair grips. They're like triangulated and they snap close or snap open. And so you can look, there's different ways of getting these or bicycle clips or slap bracelets. They're all sort of bi-stable structures. That's the, the bracelet that you kind of like slap onto your hand or yeah, your wrist yeah. and it forms. And it, yeah, it closes. It closes around your wrist. Yeah. Yeah. So what we then, you can find that's just with metal, but when you start putting an anisotropy in it, guess what? It's like having the, the material properties interact with the geometry. 
and you can tailor the whole shape and profile and not only does it have to go into a cylinder you can get it to go into twisted shapes or uh, various other shapes uh, and you can change how stiff it is in certain shapes which is could be quite important um, so uh, yeah we started looking at making morphing structures which buckled rather than had separate mechanisms the advantage of this you get much lighter weight better performance you don't get gaps which create unwanted drag uh, and so this is what we've been trying to do the last 15 years progressing it for various applications for wing structures and trailing edge flaps which control lift and drag uh, an obvious candidate we've been looking at a lot of that in in fixed wing aircraft in uh, rotary wing like helicopter rotor blades and wind turbine blades and also looking at applications in automotive basically for um for, for tuning downforce of right, cars, so sports cars how, how would that look like how would you try to tune the downforce well yeah, aerodynamic fairings already exist on formula one high-end sports cars and they're trying to dynamic as much downforce as possible you've got a lot of grip but perhaps you want it on one area rather than the other side so one part of the car could open up the left hand side of your cornering to the left for example and the right heart stays closed so you can generate more downforce on one side than the other you put it where it's needed okay but the key the key point here then is that that actuation and that, that mm. change that you just talked about in the performance of the structure yeah. you wouldn't necessarily want that to occur from an actuator you kind of want mm. the structure to interact with the fluid dynamics of the air and then basically kind of mm -hmm. sense what's going on around it and automatically yeah. change shape is that kind of well right now you want both and the reason for that is um if you always want something to change shape at a particular condition like a flow condition and it's only one condition then we want something like a passive actuation so when the air pressure reaches a certain level, you may want it to open. It's like a valve, if you will, but it's integral. There's no moving components. It's all structural deformation. Um, but for example, if you want to go a certain fluid pressure, but at a different temperature, that's going to be difficult. And maybe you want active type uh, uh, response and maybe using electric motors, or which are heavy, not ideal, but very versatile, or where appropriate, to electric patches which are lightweight or shape memory alloys could have application there so there's a difference between what we call active morphing and passive morphing passive morphing is the most elegant and in my opinion can can be used in applications already particularly in automotive or in some aerospace things we have these they're called NACA air ducts and these things can open or close and Ryan you know about this because you've been working on it as well in recent times so these things, we can get, get them to respond to a particular flow condition, open and close. Wow, completely passive way of getting morphing. So I guess the overarching the, the theme is basically you're trying to remove components, trying to combine different functionalities all yeah. into a structure to basically produce weight and drag, as you alluded to, yeah. so that it becomes a bit more like, like nature goes about doing things. So a bird can naturally yeah. change the angle of attack of its wings, and it doesn't require separate mechanisms to go about it. Yeah, absolutely. What you're trying to do is put system level properties where, like a mechanical engineer, might have an actuator, one thing, piece of material, another, and on a large scale, you're trying to integrate all those functionality within the material. And so I recently saw um, a YouTube video of you where you talked about artificial metamorphosis. Yeah. Which is quite a mouthful, but mm. it's a. Uh, I guess the vision that mm. you have about the future yeah. of aircraft. What does that vision entail? It's not just aircraft, it's uh, structures in general. I believe that 
I think Inspector Gadget, but basically structures can be able to be broken down into modules of high value and then you could repurpose and reassemble them. It's part of a full cycle design approach, which is environmentally friendly. But really, basically, I mean, it's like Lego. It's like Lego Meccano. You can repurpose and rebuild, and you get and what you need for that is smart joint interfaces, and maybe using graphing, which is multifunctional, other things which you can switch on and switch off, and then bonds can break and then reattach. Uh, and that, by this metamorphosis, that's what actually happens with, with things dissolve and then they regrow. Now, the first steps of that to me are topological changes whereby joints can disassemble and reassemble. Now, there's been a lot of um, uh, good press from the science community on self-assembly of atoms. Well, I guess what I'm looking for is self-assembly and disassembly of structures, large-scale structures. And I believe that this is the, the, the science is good, the physics is and chemistry is possible. So in 50 years' time, what, 50 years time which is probably the scale we look, time period we're looking at, watch this space. I think there's all sorts of exciting things that we can do in which structures reconfigure themselves. And you're looking at that from a multi-length scale perspective. So yes. it's not only changes at the macro level that we can mm. see with our yeah. eyes, but yeah. it's also that the microstructure maybe of the materials yeah. is changing or yes. it's across different lengths. So to be honest, what yeah, to be honest, honest is not, I'm always honest, but the, to, to shed more light, this relies on cooperation between engineers working at the hundreds of meters length scale, which I tend to do with wind turbine blades, aircraft wings, with the physicist and chemist at the nanoscale. So you need an amplification of strange effects at the atomic scale, which is what happens with graphene, and to continue them through the hierarchical length scales, to reinforce them, to tune them, so that they, those responses persist or actually not just persist, but actually increase. So the simplest example of that is called mechanical advantage or a lever. Are you in this block and tackles? We we use a small force to create something small, something long. And so I believe that there are uh, equivalents to be found or to be utilized, exploited in a mechanical function from the nanoscale, the macroscale, but also possibly electrical, thermal, magnetic. But that's a future for it. So artificial metamorphosis is basically reconfigurable structures with smart interfaces. Wow, that sounds absolutely fascinating. So I'll be looking forward, I mean, in 50 years, I hope I'll still be alive. And, and I'll be <laughs> well, I'm planning see, on being alive, right? Yeah, to, yeah <laughs> to see one of those structures actually in action. Now, so going from the far future to maybe actually 50 years the other way, um, I want to pose kind of a, uh, a bit of a, well, a question to you that, um, we have got the quick fire seminar at yep. the University of Bristol where we talk for a couple of minutes minutes about our research topic. So um, I'm going to ask you a quick fire question, which is a, a short question, but you don't necessarily, your answer doesn't have to be short. Uh, and so the first one is um, the de Havilland mosquito, mm. overrated or underrated? Oh, underrated massively. Why, it was a game that? changer. Uh, basically, uh, well, uh, up until then, it, it actually heralded a new age of um, of synthetic resins. 
So phenolic resin was uh, used before that. Before, so used at that time, inserted into, into de Havilland. Composites, uh, plywood was orientated at certain angles to get the best stiffness and strength. Plywood has a grain direction, it's laminated. So uh, the composite mechanics we know was, came from plywood. But the most important thing more than this plywood was actually the, the resins, phenolic resins that came out of Duxford by a guy called De Bruyne. Um, and so before that, the glues were made from natural products, milk products called casein and other things. And unfortunately, in, in the high humidity of Singapore and the Far East, they would melt in the sky, they would dissolve the rain. So um, that was this obviously a disaster, but the phenolic resins obviously didn't. So I guess the, so the Mosquito was probably the first composite aircraft. It wasn't carbon fiber. No, I also forgot to mention honeycomb was used in it for the first time. Honeycomb as well, but, so, it, was, yeah. but it was a natural composite because they used yes. plywood essentially to, and to he, build a super fast aircraft. And so lightweight it could be assembled in no time just by hand tools because you've got plywood with a honeycomb core. Honeycomb core was patented in England in 1936 and quickly used into... Uh, they have an albatross as a as a civil aircraft, and then the uh, the mosquito. Mm -hmm. This was game changing technology, which is not recognised. Right, which is I ask you the question because you are an expert on aircraft. I think it was one of the the things I think you you pointed out um, in one of the lectures that where I was um, attending, and it was it did open my mind mm -hmm. to the fact, fact that yeah, composites have been around for quite some time, and back then you don't think of, of wood as a, as a composite, no. but it is a highly functional strong material and very lightweight yeah absolutely so so just to finish i, I want to ask you a, a question about i mean for our younger listeners what do you any recommendations you have you, you mentioned two books two great books by professor yeah. gordon yeah. Uh, which actually um i have read elon musk actually oh. recommends as well does he yes he does <laughs> yes the uh, structures or why things don't fall down book I yeah think is one of his one of his favorites are you joking and uh, i have the yeah, it's a good Great book. So, are there any other resources or maybe ideas you have about um, a career in airspace or in academia? Yeah. Um, wow. Uh, if you're good at school, just follow your uh, just follow your dreams. Just follow what you want to do, and uh, things work out. I went to Newcastle University uh, with great A level grades. Everyone else around me got C's to do materials engineering. I got much better grades. I got top grades. Um, and I was told I'm doing the wrong course, and uh, I, I, my career has been highly successful. If you just follow your dreams, um, and, and and be determined, and be true to yourself. Uh, if you want to do, do <laughs> Einstein said, genius is ninety nine percent perspiration, one percent inspiration. Um, I'm not a genius, but I work very hard, and I enjoy what I do. Great. Well, thanks for having this conversation, Paul. It's been absolutely delightful. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ryan. I enjoyed it too. Hi. After finishing the interview with Paul, I realized that we didn't quite make it clear what the de Havilland Mosquito was in the first place. The de Havilland Mosquito was a British multi-role combat aircraft which served during and after the Second World War. The incredible thing about the Mosquito was that it was constructed entirely out of timber in a sandwich construction with two plywood sheets covering a core of balsa wood. A typical cylindrical aircraft fuselage today is made from aluminium or carbon fiber, but the Mosquito's cylindrical fuselage was made of the same plywood and balsa you would find in any workshop. As Paul said, new resin systems were also pioneered in the Mosquito to hold the wooden sandwich construction together in the hot and humid flying conditions over the Pacific. Tragically, some planes did come apart over the Pacific though. 
Because of its lightweight wooden construction, the Mosquito was one of the fastest operational aircraft during World War II, and its modular design also allowed it to be reconfigured in many different incarnations, from reconnaissance aircraft to heavy bomber or nighttime fighters, and even used for precision attacks against tactical German defense stations. Another great advantage of the wooden construction was that many of the unemployed British carpenters during the war were employed to churn out mosquitoes by the hundreds. So it's no surprise that Paul was so enthused by this particular aircraft. It's a gem of British aviation history. Anyways, I hope that you got a feel for Paul's enthusiasm for aerospace engineering, and if you're inspired to learn a bit more about structural efficiency, morphing, or some of the other topics we discussed, then you can find detailed links to further reading material at airspaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast. If you enjoyed my conversation with Paul and want to support the podcast, then I would really appreciate a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you're listening to these conversations. Every review helps improve the show's rankings and allows me to reach more people. It also lets me know how I can make the show better. It only takes a minute. And with that, thank you very much for listening, and I hope that you will tune in again next time.